Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Startup Sales. Today we have a great guest, Daniel Barber. Uh, we're going to be speaking about your go-to-market strategy for the early days, uh, your ICP, how to focus on on a particular problem and, and fix that, uh, going up market, pricing. We're going to cover a lot of things and there's a lot of actionable insights. So I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, I know I did. And if I could ask everyone that's listening a favor, if you could please help us get the word out on this podcast by uh, going onto iTunes and reviewing us and leaving us a rating and also sharing, uh, sharing it on your uh, social media. It would be really helpful. Uh, we need to get the numbers up so we could help and uh, continue to help uh, more people and more companies. Let's get to today's episode with Daniel. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate the time. So uh, can you tell the listeners uh, a little bit about who you are and, and why they should listen to you? Yeah. So Daniel Barber, CEO and co-founder of DataGrail, a privacy platform uh, during the age of privacy. Uh, I also lead a number of uh, you know high-growth startups, so companies like Outreach.io, Chorus.ai, and SignOnSite uh, in Australia. Um, I have experience going sort of the uh, zero to one, the one to 10, um, and the 10 plus. So I've sort of seen all different stages um, of the go-to-market uh, sort of landscape um, and excited to spend some time today with you sort of going through my learnings along the way and any insights that, uh, you know, I'm happy to share. Wow, that's really uh, impressive, uh, impressive resume. Uh, uh, part of a few uh, skyrocketing companies right now. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think part of it uh, is just identifying areas of opportunity in sort of uh, the go-to-market landscape, which has sort of been my forte. But um, yeah, happy to share some some insights across the landscape too. So, what what is go-to-market? When people say go-to-market, what what do they mean? Yeah, I I think about that uh, component as uh, you know, anything that touches the future customer or the customer. So that starts with, you know, all the way up one end of the spectrum where you have, you know, marketing assets that are trying to drive demand to the website. Um, that includes product marketing in that area as well. That includes, you know, outbound activities that perhaps an SDR team is involved in or inbound activities where an SDR is engaging and trying to qualify and understand if a company or an individual could be a good fit for the business, if the problems are aligned, um, all the way to you know the customer success team engaging with the organization and trying to ensure that the product or service delivers value um, to the business and continues to deliver value to the extent that um, renewal conversations are um, part of that discussion um, and also upsell conversations are part of that discussion. So really anything that touches the um, you know, future customer or current customer. Okay. And so if you're uh, an early stage company, uh, you know, there, that's a lot of information, a lot of different directions to be going and, and focusing on. Where, 
where should you be focusing on first? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, from my experience doing sort of the the zero to one a few different times, um, I think the the un overarching thing there is um, focusing on a problem and a very distinct problem um, is an important part of uh, ensuring that the business is aligned towards go-to-market fit um, or I should say product market fit Uh, and I think you know in in the earliest days when you're trying to figure out how your product um, aligns with a problem um, really sort of diving into the first two or three or four customers and trying to find similar problems that they're all encountering. Um, and they need to be all sort of similar sized or similar focused organizations, right? If you have um, a very large organization and a very small organization, and they appear to have a similar problem, that could be good. Um, but you probably want to validate that, you know, uh, a similar large company also has the same problem, and a similar small company has the same problem. So this is really about sort of understanding your ideal customer profile in the earlier stages, um, which really just aligns to what is the problem set that you've identified that you see a product or service being able to solve. I like that. It's, it's so many people are focusing on the ICP, the ideal client profile, saying, okay, they need to be this size company in this geographical location in this kind of person. Uh, and you're saying to add a, a fourth wheel to that, which is, they have a pain. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think it depends on what stage of the cycle you're in, right? So if you're in the zero to one, you're you're trying anything to um you know try to solve that that problem that you've identified. So that'll mean building product around the problem set that you've identified. Um as you go from, you know, one to ten, then you're doing something different. Then you're saying, Okay, we found, I think, the problem set that is product market fit. Um, and so as a result, now you're trying to move into this go-to-market fit stage where um, you know, aligning to the right set of companies is critical because that's how you ensure you know, rapid growth from one to 10. So it's, it differs depending on the stage that you're in, but that zero to one, which there may be a number of folks on, on this podcast today that are listening in from that stage, um, trying to align to the problem set of the potential customer and then building product around that problem set is the fastest way to ensure that you have a sticky product and you're providing a solution to your customer. So I've, I've seen a lot of founders make the mistake of just saying, well, the problem is, is they need uh, a, a communication channel for like Zoom. They, it's too shallow. What do, you, what do you say? How do you dive in deep and actually get to understand the real, the real problem that you're solving? Um, so it's a, it's a good question. I think the, the thing that I'd say there is that, um, you know, if you're trying to compete with zoom, so if you have a communications platform that is designed to, uh, you know, support web conferencing, right. That's, that's what you're trying to solve. Then, you know, zoom has an established position in the market. They're a leader in the market. They're an expanding player in the market. So in order to compete against zoom, you would need to have um, the minimum requirements to support web conferencing, but um, capitalize on perhaps a weakness um, in Zoom's uh, solution set. So much so that the weakness is strong enough that you could claim a potential customer based purely on that weakness. Now, um, the challenge there is that 
you know, in that market, it might be mature enough that the weakness just isn't strong enough to actually claim uh, claim a competitive position. So if if there isn't a strong enough position um, of weakness from Zoom, then probably that market is not uh, a good market to enter at this stage. And I would say, you know, given that market is fairly mature, right? We've seen players from WebEx, um, you know, that are ten years ten years old, right, or ten years plus. That could be a challenging market to entry enter at this junction, given there are very strong established players. Yeah. Okay. And and you said to like work with three, four, five of your current clients that are all in the right the right area, the same size company, same industry, um, and to get to understand them and get to know them. How do you approach one of those clients and say, hey, I want to just pick your brain and, and, and learn what your problems are? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think the customer development phase is critical for developing uh, any type of solution set, right? So when you're trying to understand the problem, which is what you do in customer development, you're doing effectively interviews with people. So you interview prospective customers to form a thesis around a problem set that you think exists. Um, you don't have product yet, right? So what's often um, sort of disjointed is that early early stage founders will go straight to writing code, which is 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 great. Um, but the challenge is you might not be actually solving a real problem. Um, and so you know doing those interviews and really you know at at minimum about ten to fifteen, ideally twenty interviews with folks that are uh, involved in addressing this type of problem. And if you validate with them, you know, at least 10 that, hey, this is a common problem and it's not getting solved. Um, and even with the existing players in the market, it's still not getting solved. Then then it's probably time to work out how could you address that problem with with software if that's the uh, product that you're selling. And I would, I would say, take it even a step further and say, like, don't ask them directly, hey, do you have this problem? Ask them the questions, open-ended questions in that direction but to let them come out with it in their own voice. And then that way you really know it's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing there is sort of the latent variable, right? So the, the problem itself from a survey methodology standpoint, if you try to address by just asking, do you have this problem? To your point, you're probably not going to get the answer that you actually need because you need more detail into um, all of the auxiliary components, the other sort of variables addressing that issue. Um, and so if you get those, then you can work out exactly which ones would you need to build in order to address actually the latent variable, which you're just trying to ask, do you have this problem? But if you ask that directly, you, you don't actually get the detail that you need. Yeah. It will make for a stronger product if you do get that detail. Correct. And a stronger stickiness and everything. Correct. Okay. And so, I mean, you, you, you have done this recently several times too to start over, but what, what are like the first steps to, if you're just starting, what are the first steps? You said to go speak to about ideally 20, 20 people, but what, what would you do first if you were to do this now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, part of it is, uh, you know, understanding and sort of stepping back from a potential, uh, potential area that you're looking to solve um, and sort of looking for problems that exist, either process-related problems or risk-related problems or effectiveness or efficiency-related problems. They're all 
there are different problem sets you can solve there, of course. Um, and so, you know, if I if I look at uh, my own example with DataGrail, we saw a problem set that existed primarily based on sort of two axes. One that, you know, privacy regulation continues to increase. So the number of regulations continues to increase. And the nuances between those regulations continues to increase. And then on the other axes, you see um, the number of applications that businesses use continue to increase. In fact, we we're just talking earlier about Squadcast. I've never used this uh, tool before, uh, <laughs> but now it has access to my personal data. Um, so another system today that has access to my personal data. So that number continues to increase. And what type of data? I actually don't know. I don't know what terms I agreed to. I, I should probably check. <laughs> um, but but to that extent, right, there's there's two sort of axes of complexity that are increasing in nature on an ongoing basis. So therefore, um, if the current tool set are not addressing those two axes, then there's a problem that we could solve. Um, so that's sort of how I looked at the, the problem that we could address. Um, and then looking at if the skill sets of the people that I'm partnered with are actually suited towards solving that type of problem. Um, so if, you know, you translate that to your own business, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have deep expertise in an industry or market to be successful. Um, but if that is a market that you're entering, you don't have that expertise, then um, aligning to as many potential um, individuals as you can during customer development is really critical because you're outside your wheelhouse, right? Um, and that means that ideally, you know, you can validate, double validate um, all of those points um, through customer development. I love it. It's, it's, um, I mean, it goes against what like your natural tendency would be to do. It's like, Oh, I have this idea. I'm going to just start building it. It's like, no, mm -hmm. you, you, you need to create a business before like, and you have a business here to monetize, not just make a product. So go yeah. out and make sure that you can monetize it. Yeah. All right. So, so now you've done that. What what are the next steps? You you define your ICP. You you've got your pain. You you've got a a product that is has a very big need uh, in the market. What do you do? Yeah, so um, I'd say Jessica Livingston from um, Y Combinator had a nice um, sort of position that you know focusing on sales is important during the early stages of development, um, largely because you're trying to create um, repeatability in the problem set. So if you focus on marketing, the challenge is, is that you may actually bring in businesses that are all very different in size, in geography, in shape, in um, development. So focusing on marketing and just trying to create a magnet to bring companies to your business, look, that can work in a lot of cases, but in B2B sales, which is probably the majority of this audience, I would imagine, um, you know, that's a circumstance where really you're trying to create repeatability in the problem set first. And once that's sort of secured, right, so you've said, okay, if a business looks like ABC, our solution can solve their problem and, uh, in fact, uniquely solve their problem that we could engage someone who hasn't purchased a solution or engage someone that has and convert them or upgrade them into our solution. If you've sort of seen that sit um, and, uh, you know, now companies are starting to uh, – you know, come come on board at a increased rate. At that point in time, you know it's time to figure out. You know how do you how do you increase the number of deals that you've brought in? So get that to at least ten to fifteen that 
effectively the founder or CEO has closed. Um, I'm of a strong position that really the first 15 customers need to be customers sold by the CEO. Um, I, I just, I've seen time and time again where, you know, businesses will um, add uh, sales effort towards a, a program when they have less than five customers closed by the CEO. This means that the CEO doesn't actually understand the customer problem. So as a result, um, it's hard to then translate those stories to the now go-to-market team. So getting to the first sort of 15 customers. Um, and then after that, then it's about adding um, headcount um, to sort of deploy against you know the market. Ideally, entrepreneurial-focused um, headcount. So, um, you know, folks that probably haven't spent, you know, 10 years at Oracle, rather have spent, you know, five years or two years in perhaps software sales and so have a particular um, tendency to, to look at more entrepreneurial roles where they can sell the, the vision and the mission of the business. And that's enough to... Um, convey value and demonstrate to a business that they should partner with you. Yeah, I, I, first of all, on what you said about, you know, marketing or, or sales, I actually just did a video on this the other day mm. where it's, it's what exactly what you said, but I, I also added to it uh, that it, it's great if you could bring in a lot of leads, but if you don't have processes around closing them and any structure behind that, then what good are they? Uh, yeah, they're just yeah. going to sit there in your CRM. Yep. Uh, so definitely. Um, on the on the hiring side, it's really interesting. So because a lot of people feel like, no, they have to have industry experience. The exact experience is what I'm doing. And you're saying, though, that it's more important that they have uh, a similar type of experience, but in like in the same stage company rather than being specific in that uh, industry. Yeah, I I tend to think, at least from from what I've seen, you know, hiring probably close to a hundred uh, go to market folks at this point. Um, I did a post on Salesforce's blog about interviewing a thousand people, um, so I'm probably at fifteen hundred to two thousand now. Kind of lost track there. Um, I, you know, and I think the the piece that's has stood out is that it's more important to have stage appropriate experience than domain experience. Um, it's easy to over-index on domain experience. You get attracted by someone who has come from the same category or come from, you know, close by adjacent space. That's helpful. Um, just just the thing is, is that doesn't mean they'll be successful, right? So the, the point earlier around uh, stage experience, uh, if someone has primarily spent all of their efforts in a publicly traded uh, organization where you know, you've got 10,000 people in the company, you've got 2,000 sellers, all the processes established, they've got onboarding materials, they've got enablement materials, they've got marketing events, they've got all of these different resources that are available to them. Um, and so there's very little ambiguity in the, the sales process. If you then try to translate or transfer that person to an earlier stage company where, I mean, we all know there's a lot of ambiguity, right? That's, that's part of the excitement. Um, their their skill set might not translate. Um, so, um, I you know from my experience, it's been very valuable to try to find you know really one to two, ideally two folks that you know have got uh, uh, sort of series or stage appropriate um, experience, 
uh, in that, you know, closing the first 100 customers or first 200 customers, if you're an early stage founder, that's probably the better, better skill to look for. Couldn't agree with you more. My, my own career in like the, the tech world started, uh, I was the first hire for like a, a technical product with API and everything. I didn't even know what an API was. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, and it's because of that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, being able to, and I found this also in what I hire, who I've hired and built the teams, is that being able to be resourceful and go out there and learn something and, and, and figure it out because you don't have a team behind you, like you said, to, to do something. You don't have somebody that's going to make the, uh, your RFI, uh, uh, RFP uh, paperwork and stuff. They're, you have to make it. Yep. So really, agree, really agree with you there. Yep. Um, okay. Um, how do I know? Because you say 50, you, the founders should do 15 sales first. I think that's a, I would guess it really depends on your price point and, and sales process, how complicated it is. Do you, how is a better way to judge that than just saying uh, 15 deals before you should hire a salesperson? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple criteria there, so it's not as blanket. Um, I think, you know, if you're doing uh, low touch or no touch sales, right, effectively e commerce, then probably you don't need to engage with 15 different businesses to validate that, you know, this is a market and you understand the problem set well, and therefore your solution set can solve that problem set. You, you probably don't need that, right? If it's e commerce, no touch sales, but then that's not sales, right, for B2B yeah. software. So, you know, if you're, if you're uh, doing sales in the sub 10K sort of SMB segment, um, you may want to increase that number because if that's the, the, the segment of uh, businesses that you're focused on, businesses that would spend under $10,000, then you may want more. Um, but, you know, if you're doing mid-market enterprise size deals, you need to at least, in my opinion, have, you know, 10, 15 examples of, being able to understand the problems out of the business, deliver the solution that you've got, implement the solution you've got, see the problem set get addressed by your solution, um, and then translate that story to the next one, right? So there's value to consuming that information then translating it to the next um, example. And I think if, if that's overlooked, uh, it's often the case that then, you know, how that's translated to the, the potential salesperson that's coming in now they've got to ramp up and basically do the same thing, right? So they can't take the, the learnings from the CEO or the founder. They have to learn them themselves. So you've effectively, effectively put your go-to-market back six to 12 months because you haven't got someone that can take the product to market. All right. You, you mentioned something about, uh, you know, if you're at that lower than 10K uh, price point and you're wanting to move, you probably may want to increase that. I think this is something that a lot of founders uh, do at the beginning. It's like, okay, let's just lower the price and get people in the door. How should you start with the pricing and how should you, you equalize the fact that you're brand new and you have an early stage product? Yeah, so, so that's a good question. Pricing is a complicated topic. Um, so there's no, there's no maybes about that. Um, the only thing I would say is I have done a decent amount of research on this topic. Um, I had a, did a podcast with Bowery Capital um, where we talked about um, so the the pricing quadrant, 
So the SaaS pricing quadrant. So if you look that up, um, that's also a pretty good podcast I did on this topic. Um, I'd say that, you know, really to, to narrow down that podcast uh, into sort of the, the four unique quadrants, um, you know, you've sort of got a user model, you've got a usage model, you've got a rev share model, and you've got an enterprise licensing agreement model. It's really only sort of those four models in SaaS. It's actually quite simple. Um, if, if you're going about it, uh, approaching businesses, uh, you know, in your early stage sales where you just want to bring them on, you don't really care how much they pay, um, your time isn't free. Um, and these enterprises, remember, they're spending their company's money to address this problem. So they're not spending the individual's money on the other end that you're speaking with. So you do need to value your time and value the problem that you're addressing. And so understanding sort of a rough uh, return on that investment, given either the time involved by the person on the other end or um, your output that you would deliver uh, you know, from an effectiveness standpoint um, is valuable to then conveying about like what your, your product should be priced. Um, or I should say how your product should be priced. I think um, it's it's in the earliest stages, it's often assumed you just give the product away. Um, I would advise founders to not take that approach. Uh, I just think that, you know, at the end of the day, if you have done your customer development correctly and you're addressing a problem that is painful for a company, um, they will pay. Um, and they should pay on an annual agreement if you can do it. Um, I wouldn't advise going to monthly agreements. It doesn't create the commitment that you're ultimately looking for. Um, and it sets the relationship off sort of on the wrong foot in that it's a short-term transactional commitment. So as a result, you're continually sort of going down this treadmill of transactional commitment each month. Um, I think the an annual commit is, um, is a reasonable ask. Um, and therefore, you know, Charge appropriately, but you really should have annual commitments if you're if you're in SaaS. And it also it you know takes the concern away. Like many founders feel like, well, we're early stage. Why would they commit to us? And but when you come to the table and say, no, we want an annual commitment, it shows that you're more serious as well, and it shows like you, you're here to do business, and it, it adds confidence for them, which will increase the likelihood of them buying. Correct. And the same goes with price. You know, if if let's say you're com- you're a new car manufacturer and you're going to make a, a new Mercedes, or let's go even crazier, a new Ferrari for ten thousand um, dollars, people aren't going to value it. They're not. They're going to look at it like, well, it looks nice on paper, but uh, I'd rather go with a Ferrari. Yeah, I mean, price anchoring is a thing. Um, that's another area that I've spent a decent amount of time. Um, I've post on. Um, uh, seven seven tips for competitive markets on Saster. If you're curious um, on that topic further, but uh, you know that's one where yeah, price anchoring to your point is a is an important piece, and people often overlook if you price too cheap, um, you sort of devalue your product. Um, so yeah, resources there. I'm gonna. Uh... Ask, ask you for those links and uh, I'll put them in the show notes. That would be uh, helpful. Yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Any, uh, for all the early stage founders that are out there, any last minute tips on what they should do and where, where they should focus on to, to get that initial traction? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if there are like two nuggets from from this conversation that I would share is one, you know, customer development uh, is so critical to establishing your business. It's so often overlooked. People just, you know, speak to one or two people that potentially have a problem and then they start writing code around that problem. Um, you need more, uh, a stronger understanding of if there are a number of people trying to address this problem and what are all the nuances of that problem. Um, that is just so critical. Uh, and then I think the secondary point of just aligning the first few customers you have around your thesis or hypotheses of the way the problem has to be solved um, is also so important. Um, I think it's very easy to just you know, spin up advertising spend and try to get people to come to your website and maybe you'll get you know, demand that way and a few early stage customers. That's not really how early stage customers really um, benefit your roadmap. Um, ideally, you, you tie your first early stage customers entirely around your business so that um, you, know, you can get deep lock-in into the feature set that they need um, and build features and functionality that really address that problem so that you have effectively a moat, um, which is an often talked about term, but you can develop that really early on if you approach their problems correctly. Fantastic. Daniel, this has been really insightful and helpful. How can people reach out to you and learn more? Yeah. Um, so you can obviously find me on sort of the white pages of the internet, otherwise known as LinkedIn. Um, so Daniel Barber on there. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, uh, my handle is GaijinDan. Um, that is Japanese for a foreign person because I'm generally always a foreign person. Um, and um, yeah, those are probably the two easiest and fastest ways. Great. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.